Religion is the masterpiece of the art of animal training, for it trains people as to how they shall embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline, and we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death. Go, go save Riley. <laughs> Take her to the moon for me, okay? Welcome, friends, to another episode of Embrace the Void, where the only dogma is irony. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week is the religion studies scholar, Joseph Blankholm, an associate professor at UC Santa Barbara. He recently published a book called The Secular Paradox on the Religion of the Non-Religious. This book was deeply frustrating to me in a lot of ways, which coming from a philosophy background is a deep compliment. Joseph claims, among other things, recently that atheism is the future of the study of religion, and I really want to desperately help him diagnose movement secularism. So, Joseph, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello. Thank you for having me here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I really appreciate it to get the invitation, so I'm excited. My pleasure. And just for a little background, I invited you because I came across your book as a result of peer reviewer number two on a peer-reviewed article on secular moral philosophy that I have two years now in peer review. Um, and I, I like grudgingly was like, I'll read this book fine. And it turned out to be a really, really important, but as I said, deeply frustrating book. So I'm, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you taking up the offer to come and chat because I do think you've got some very important things to say about what's what problems we have in movement secularism. So that was one of the frustrating levels. The other frustrating level that isn't at all your fault was that you quoted at length probably 90% of the people I know, and you then anonymized them in a way where it's like ever so slightly a matching game that I could probably do with about an hour's research, but was sort of a very weird experience reading through this and being like having the anthropologic, you know, anthropologic uh, lens applied to your own community is always fun. Yeah, I changed some of the details to mix people up a little bit, but I suspect you have good <laughs> ideas. Yeah. yeah, it's a small enough group and everybody's got their catchphrases and like hobby horses. So it's like it's pretty hard to anonymize certain parts of this. But the other so the thing I want to start off with on the like philosophy of religion side of things that like was a, a frustration, I think, in my initial understanding of your framing that I think maybe got cleared up. So I want to ask you this question to begin with. What is your definition of religion, and does it matter at all for your argument in this book? Yeah, that's a good question. I sort of refuse definition, and I have various reasons why. So I don't really give one in the book. There are different ways that I use to understand it. One of the simplest ways I, I try to think about definition, and especially as it comes to religion, but also um, I think any other social category, it's like, a, it's like a little animal that we need to hold gently. And if you squeeze it too tight, you're going to kill it. And if it's dead, you can study its corpse. But you can't study it as a living thing unless you hold it gently. 
And so I think we need to remember that a lot when we're studying things through any kind of social scientific lens, because our impulse is to really try to represent reality and language and make sure that every word is a variable that's disambiguated so that we have this nice billiard ball model of causal reality in the sky. And Mm -hmm. really, I think what's going on is far more ambiguous in that relationship between the social, social stuff and language. And so when we start to get rid of ambiguity and we start to get rid of the possibility of a symbol or a metaphor, we start to lose touch with what's going on in the social. And I think definition asks us to do that. You know, another Mm -hmm. reason I don't like definition and all due respect to the good folks at Merriam-Webster and the OED is that I don't really like nothing. (laughs) I was a little bit facetious, but so (laughs) I'm just backing you up on that. (laughs) The history, the history of dictionaries, really. I mean, it's in some ways an imperial project. It's about sure saying what words can mean via an authority, really useful for creating communities of language, really useful for those types of projects, nation building. Mm-hmm. But, and I'm not against all of that, right? What I'm like, but if we know the process, I don't always want to cede my authority to say what a word means or can do to some people I've never met who wrote a dictionary definition. Nor do I want to do that to another scholar who circumscribed what they're doing with a definition. I want it to live and I want it to hold it gently. This is a very good preamble, and I'm sympathetic to especially the colonial knowledge production argument here. I'm also giggling because given your like hold the definition gently, you must think of me and other philosophers as like the Lennies of the academic world, just squeezing the life out of every possible concept just because we love it a little too much. So yeah. on the flip side, though, right, the you know, like the counterpoint there is like, we cannot abandon our attempts to give up definition because we have to understand things and understanding involves categorizing and, you know, we can problematize that process as much as we want. But at the end of the day, we have to say what we're for and what we're against. Right. And that's a distinction that involves definitions. Um, so let's, let me ask you this. I'll give you the GPT-4 out answer. What are the like top definitions of religion? We've covered this before with folks like Chris Kavanaugh, but like, what do you understand to be the major players in like the options for definitions of religion i want to be a little bit slippery before i get into it again so we sometimes talk about definitions i think we can also talk about meaning and when Mm -hmm. we think about what that word means to us meaning it there's a little bit more play in it and so i like it that way i like that things can mean multiple things and and we're more used to that and then i think there's this other thing we need to consider is that you know all of our language has a history just like the stuff that we're trying to name with language has a history And those histories are obviously interconnected. But when we're trying to do good scholarship, if we want to do sort of, I don't know, let's call it as close as we can get to like objective social science, I need to understand myself and where my own language comes from. I need to understand that how I'm like kind of a stacked up sediment of history, someone who arrives midstream using concepts he didn't invent, learning a language he didn't invent, speaking through it and thinking through it. I need to know that while I also need to know where the stuff I'm looking at comes from. So I'm taking these two things at once. And I need to Mm. find in a moment some kind of understanding, even though they're both mobile. And so that's kind of what the genealogical work, as scholars will sometimes call it, of accounting for the history of your words. So for me, when I think about religion, some of the hot definitions in my brain are going to be whatever looks like Protestantism. That's a pretty good one for the United States. If you're looking at the law, that's a really good one, whatever looks like Protestantism, because that's what gets exceptions to state authority. That's what looks like in the IRS code. It's all minister, uh, ministers sure. of the gospel, churches. So you have to be analogous to it. 
if I'm in religious studies, we've gone through different waves of understanding what religion is. There's your old, very Protestant understanding of like, um, you know, Paul Tillich, ultimate concern. There's like a, a shift away from that, trying to recover more Catholic notions of practice and tradition. You see this in the Supreme Court when there are no Protestants on it. For instance, during like the Hobby Lobby case era, it has a more mm-hmm, tradition-based mm-hmm. understanding of what religion is. So I think that we have different understandings of religion. Does that mean religion means nothing? No, not at all. So mm. words mean many okay. things. That doesn't mean they mean anything, and it doesn't mean they mean nothing. But as an empirical scholar, I want to hold some of that multiple at any given time. So for me in the book, when I'm thinking about what religion is, there's probably two main ways I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it as the thing that secular people almost by definition need to react to and not be, and that's going to be mobile. So that's going to depend on who the secular people are, what organization I'm talking about. And then I'm also talking to like everyday people and scholars of religion and being like, I know you're thinking that when I'm describing these people, it looks a lot like a religion because that's what everybody tells me when I describe my research. And so I'm mm-hmm. having a conversation with that tacit definition in their head. And I leaned into that by having a chapter on belief, a chapter on community, a chapter on ritual, a chapter on conversion, and a chapter on tradition. Because those are different aspects of religion that I think mm-hmm. secular people have to deal with in one way or another, whether that's just pushing it away, whether it's changing it into something that they can incorporate. And so I'm having that kind of conversation maybe subliminally, but not in a weird propagandistic way, with right. understandings of religion that people in my audience might have. I don't know if that boils down to a definition, but I'm trying to just sort of hold those meanings. Yeah, no, I think those multiple meanings I would put as like, here are the different definitions people have given for religion. You know, a pluralist account of the concept of religion would say it could be some mix of these different things. Maybe none of them are essential but it isn't just literally anything. It's certain kinds of beliefs or modes of behavior or something like that. And like you say, depending on which kind of religion you're used to being the majority, you might emphasize belief or behavior more or something like that. What was really important to me, and this is what I recommend for secular folks who are trying to read this book, a lot of times when, from our perspective, right, I'll speak for the secular community now, when people come to us with a you, what you're doing is religion argument, it's usually garbage. And it's usually like a terrible version of what you're doing here where they say this is what religion is and you're doing that. And it's you know very ham-handed, right? We had this recently with the whole situation with wokeness, which I'm sure we'll talk about here at some point. And like initially I wasn't clear if what you were saying was you have an account of religion and based on it, this is religious. Or what I came to interpret it as, which I, tell me if this is wrong. I think you're real key insight is secular people have different definitions of or meanings of religion in their heads and depending on what they're thinking it means at a given moment they're going to be reactionary towards certain beliefs or behaviors based on that definition whatever the actual definition of religion really is is that right it's half of it so this is the thing with the secular paradox that's that explains like the negative half so there's kind of a working definition of religion and religious that secular people kind of need to have. I should, I guess, preface for the audience too. I consider myself an atheist. I'm a secular person. I think when you study atheism for a long time, you end up with a weird relationship to that category, as I'm sure you relate. Yeah. But it's probably the Were you best born word. atheist, by the way? Uh, aren't we all? Um, I oh, no. was, so my mom <laughs> is the only religious person in my family, and mm-hmm. she became religious at a certain point, and no one else is. So 
for the early part of my life, there was no religion. And then there was like my mom's okay. Christianity. And then, sure. and then I stepped away from that. So it's kind I'm of curious mix. if you had a deconversion or not. That seems to matter a lot. If whether someone had to go through an active deconversion or just like slid into active secularism. I think I had a failed earnest attempt at conversion. Hmm. And then I acknowledged the failure slowly and then didn't hmm. think much about it for a long time. And then okay. kind of came back to that. Yeah. Just, just figuring out your positionality. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Sure, yeah. No, I mean, it's a question we get constantly as religious studies scholars because of this inheritance of what we think religion is, which is something that's deeply personal, that's ideological, that's kind of like latent, that's going to be a set of values and norms that are going to come out. So occasionally I find myself talking to one of my good colleagues in physics or something like that, and they're just trying to figure out if I'm a crypto-evangelical. And I get it. <laughs> and I can hear them asking <laughs> questions, and I'm trying to reassure them in various kinds of ways. So I, I understand all that. And that's part of what it is to be in a religious studies department where we study, you know, I call it the garbage heap of the enlightenment. It's all the stuff that doesn't really fit. Dumpster <laughs> diving is really good. You know, it's just the early like 1900s is the dumpster fires. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 I mean, we got scholars of medieval Islam. We got me. We got, you know, all kinds of, it's a, it's a strange discipline in this sense, but we're all kind of, we're all approaching religion in a secular way as a strange object that mm. is difficult to assimilate by other disciplines. So back to your, your question of like, there's this sort of one side that you have to have a working definition of religion if you're a very secular person and you're really thinking about your secularism or your secularity because you need to know the stuff that you aren't. There needs right. to be stuff that like by definition that you're not participating in. So again, I say this as somebody who like also has these thoughts and feelings is averse to some stuff. It's like, you know what? I don't really want to pray with you right now. That makes me feel uncomfortable. And that's part yeah. of what it is to be me. And then there's this other side of religion that is this kind of scholarly understanding, which is this affirmative side I pick up, because what's paradoxical is the ambivalent relationship that secular people have toward religion. So it's the negative rejection, but there's also this kind of embrace. And Christianity has done this weird thing to us, where it's, it sort of treats any tradition that's an entire way of life as kind of like a religion. And that's what it is to yeah, kind of receive I want to fight that. our concepts through Christianity is we, we kind of think of them as religion. So sometimes people call them worldviews or something like that, but they end up looking a lot like Christianity because Christianity sets the table. And so I suggest in some ways that there's this secular tradition that looks a lot like a religion. And that's why secular people keep getting called a religion all the time is because we, we all know that frame. So you okay. have this kind of easy slippage into categorization that's pretty much inescapable if you're a secular person in the anglophone world you're going to have to deal with that at some point if you have beliefs about the world if you're getting together <laughs> in communities if you ever want to make a ritual for yourself for a wedding or a memorial service as a thoroughgoing moral realist you don't have to tell me about what this is going to be like i've spent fucking 10 years trying to convince secular people to adopt moral realism while not thinking it's religious and i want to push back on all of that what you're just saying there but first i want to like I'm sympathetic to your critical theory. I'm sympathetic to your colonial knowledge production arguments. I do think there are better and worse accounts of religion. And it, it, I think there was a sense in which it is clear to me what parts of religion secular individuals in my communities are pushing back on that are bad things we should push back on. And I'm curious if you would, if you would agree that like separate from this paradoxical problem of whether they can acknowledge you know, that like ethics is actually secular and not religious, there is a reality where certain beliefs and behaviors that religious communities engage in are harmful 
in a predictable way that secular communities are seeking to avoid in a as best they can reasonable kind of way. And I'm thinking of things like supernatural or divine or, you know, however you want to characterize a theistic belief of some sort. And then sort of rituals that pay service to that kind of belief structure, whether or not you believe it or not, which is something that some religious practitioners will do, because you think it's necessary or valuable or part of your community or something like that. Those two kinds of things, I think, are fundamentally bad, are not necessary or part of secularism, and I think are something that we're trying to avoid for better and worse sometimes. Now, how would you tell me I'm wrong about that? <laughs> I think that's a good description of the negative half of being secular. It involves coming up with a working understanding of religion that's usually belief-centered, that usually sees the core of religion as there is an existence of a supernatural, there is an existence of spirits that wants to kind of pin it into a definition like that because you kind of need to in order to then sequester it and remove it from your life. Now, is that a universal or fantastic definition of religion. I think in my field, we would call that a Protestant-centered definition of religion. And then we okay. would ask whether, you know, that in fact describes all religion. Sometimes so Buddhism gets described as an atheistic religion. Some Buddhists are atheists. Some Buddhists are definitely not. They believe in all kinds of spirits. Like if you know a lot okay, about okay, Tibetan okay. Buddhism. So yeah. religion, I don't know if belief in the supernatural can really bit. define it. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. And, and folks like can go back and listen to me talking to Chris Kavanaugh, who's an anthropologist of religion as well works in Japan, does a lot of non-Western religious studies. And like, I fully believe and agree with you that psychologically, a lot of Westerners, when they think of religion, are thinking of a doxastic tradition. They're thinking of one that is belief-centered, where what matters is your beliefs and intents in some kind of way, not necessarily rituals or something else separate from beliefs. That being said, and I also, I will also say, I think there's a, there's a confusion that often happens around defining religion, where we're, we're trying to figure out are there any things that are essentially religious where you can't do them or believe them without being religious? And then there's a separate question of like, is anything sufficient for something to count as a religion? If you're doing X, Y, or Z, you are necessarily a religion. And I think those things come apart because I think to some extent there is a way in which you can have, if you believe in something in a supernatural kind of way, that that is a fundamentally a religious action, even if not all religions include that, is the way I would put it, right? There are religions that don't include a belief framework, but certain belief frameworks are necessarily religious. And similarly, there are religions that include a ritual framework, even if certain religions don't necessarily include a ritual framework. That's the way I would sort of parse that. Does that make sense? So if I'm looking at all the examples of the stuff in the world. Sure. It's not a category that helps that sort of holds up and unifying all the things that I want to name. It's not a category in the world. It's the category I want to impose on the world for a specific end. So I need religion to mean that for certain things. And I get why we would, but uh, but you, the way to, this clearest way to see it is actually to get into the history of it. So where does, why do we think there's world religions? It's merchants and missionaries. It's colonialists and capitalists go out from Europe and they encounter other cultures and they see like, okay, this thing looks like what I call Christianity. And then we get like religion, you see, in older meanings of it just means like sort of very faithful. 
And so then religion starts to mean this broader thing where it's like, oh, other cultures have religions. And the, you know, the Jesuits are going in the 15th century to China and they're trying to figure out like, oh, okay, are we going to like ally ourselves with like the Buddhists or the Confucians? And they're trying to figure out whether it's a religion. These are all strategic choices. And you can look sure. at the history of those strategic choices. Fully you agree. and I having this conversation are the product of those strategic choices that have become the air we breathe. And so Absolutely. we need to watch ourselves do that work of categorizing and defining and understand strategically what we're trying to enact and what world, try, world we're trying to make. And that is a really frustrating part, I think, about the way some scholars talk about religion and even my book, is I'm trying to hold all that at once. And I'm saying like, okay, why do we want to fix the definition of religion to supernatural belief? What's the history of doing that? What are we up to? And so then when we do that, it makes it something that I can take, out, take outside of me, I can argue against. It allows me to have something I can define myself against and call myself secular because it's neatly circumcised, but it doesn't actually fit all the things that get called religion or call themselves religion. Ethical culture people call themselves religious. Atheistic Jews call themselves religious. It just gets messy real quick if you look at the stuff that gets accepted by that name. So I think ethical culture people or atheist Jews are definitely different. And I want to talk about the difference in just a second. But I'm, I'm sympathetic to this history and I'm sympathetic to the way that it, it like limits our ability to take a you know, fully objective quote unquote perspective in this kind of sense, right? We have an access problem in terms of knowledge about these concepts. I'm also at heart a lot of times a realist about things. Like I think there is something called religion. I don't think this is a confused concept, even if it is often misused. And I think it does consistently claim and, and highlight certain things. So as much as I'm sympathetic to the postmodern idea that any action or behavior could be done in a religious or non-religious way, I also think that everywhere you look, when you talk about religion, you are either talking about supernatural beliefs or rituals that take into account the idea of supernatural ideas, even if they do not involve implicit actual supernatural beliefs, which is where the atheist Jews show up. They're doing supernatural rituals, even if they're atheists, whereas the secular humanists are not, in my opinion, and should not be called religious. Whereas like the key, you know, like the hard examples of the non-Western traditions that you could point to, you, you mentioned atheist Buddhism. Atheist Buddhism, I think, is easy to distinguish from non-atheist Buddhism, which often engages in very serious supernatural beliefs and supernatural rituals. Same thing with like Japanese, you know, Shinto or ancestral culture. They still engage in rituals that I think we would argue are, if not, you know, if you don't like the word supernatural, in some way, you know, are faith-based, right? Or not scientifically verifiable in a reliable kind of way. And I agree there are ways to problematize all of those things. I do think it's a useful category for distinguishing between the kind of wishful thinking that, like, religious individuals are engaged in or magical thinking I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a purely neutral way. I know it has a very negative connotation, but what I mean is the kind of wishful thinking that hopes that willing something enough will make it so versus a kind of secularism that acknowledges that that is just not possible. So we're all over the place here. That's so yeah. many different things that religion can mean, and that's kind of the work. So, mm -hmm. I mean, what we, I think what, you know, one of the things I try to do in the book is say like, okay, what is atheism? Like right now we're kind of slipping between 
atheism and not believing in the supernatural. We're kind of equating those things. Sure. But atheism has a history. And what do we mean by that? It's a fascinating history. I go through some of it in the book. It's like, so let's just sort of start there to get our some of our bearings. Yeah, this is a great place to go. Like, yeah, how do you understand sort of the modern approaches to atheism? So the, so the term, I mean, it just means heretic for most of its 2,000-year history. I mean, literally, mm-hmm. we know kind of, we can give you the et- etymological understanding of it, which is like atheist, not God. Okay. But like, that's inadequate for then rejecting the supernatural, because rejecting mm-hmm. all supernatural is different from rejecting God. So clearly, it means more than that, less than that, whatever. And so atheos is heretic. We're rejecting uh, astro- astrology too, for example, right? It's a lot of stuff. Exactly. So you have this 2,000-year history, which it, it, it still means heretic to a lot of people. That's still a viable understanding. So atheism, modern atheism, actually gets invented by Christian theologians. Because mm-hmm. after they absorb through... So St. Thomas Aquinas takes in Aristotle, and dialectical argument becomes really important. Went great for everybody, yeah. And so... And now, now you can have Alastair McIntyre. You can have Aristotelian Christians. And it's a whole different story, right? But like, sure. so dialectical argument becomes like a, the dominant mode of theological argument. I'm summarizing a lot here, but the gist is sure, sure, yeah. right on. And so they need to have something that is the antithesis of Christianity, and that's atheism. And so they're inventing what what the scholar Alan Charles Coors, a historian of French atheism, calls the atheism of the arguments. And so they invent an atheism before there are atheists. And they invent it out of real stuff because they're not inventing it out of theory, thin earth and the antithesis. And they draw mostly on ancient Epicurean sources to a degree, maybe a little bit of stoicism, depending, and maybe some skepticism, some like Peronian skepticism, but it's mostly ancient atomism and primarily Epicureanism. And then that mm-hmm. becomes atheism. And that's not a coincidence because you know who else hates Epicureanism? Paul. So Pauline Christianity. The guy who wrote most of the New Testament. Yeah, the closeted, self-hating gay Paul. Yes, I'm familiar. Saul who becomes Paul. Paul hates Epicureanism. Of course he does. He's a dickbag. And so that Christians should later find themselves creating their own antithesis out of something that Christianity built itself at its foundation against is not at all a coincidence. So we have this atheism built. It's kind of a neo-Epicureanism. And then that over time, you start to have like uh, people who call themselves atheists in a flip way. So like the French materialists in the late 1700s, they're like, oh, sure, we're atheists. But by the 1800s, that becomes a name you call yourself when you're a materialist or you're uh, a sort of scientific empiricist. And so now you have this sort of unholy alliance between this word for heretic and this positive affirmative philosophy. That's really the origin of the thing I call the secular paradox is that negative mm-hmm. plus that positive. But when you take that seriously, the really awkward part of it is you start to realize you're in a tradition. And from a Christian perspective, it looks a lot like, even though it's its own antithesis, or another religious tradition. And so I'm just trying to explain, again, like I'm not avoiding different, I'm kind of explaining like anthropologically or sociologically, why I find this persistent rejection and embrace, rejection and embrace, and how hard it is to get outside of that. And defining it away, people keep trying to do that, but it doesn't work. It keeps coming back. Well, so I guess the question is, does it keep coming back because there's actually a good argument there or because religion is consistently sort of like convincing people that like ethics is actually religion? You know, so like t- take your take your history, history, for example. Right. I'm definitely sympathetic to the construction of these concepts, the, you know, cultural engineering, conceptual engineering, et cetera. 
I'm also someone who does think there is actually a tradition of what we can think of as secular or non-religious or atheist ideas that goes back several thousand years and includes things like Socrates saying, hey, maybe don't ask the gods for your answer. Maybe think about it for yourself. Or like, you know, um, Kavaka styles of Indian philosophy that are like, you know, there actually isn't a god and, and materialism, <laughs> you know, like we're going to do materialism early on. And then like you have people like Hobbes who had to like hide a lot of their kind of like materialist sympathy so they don't get murdered. I do think there is a tradition there. And I think it's a tradition of pushing back on certain kinds of reoccurring forms of thinking and behavior that like we do want to push back on because they're harmful and like it's good that we see that tradition reemerge in various places so I, I simultaneously agree with you that we are living in the shadow of a constructed concept but also that there is an objective truth of atheism out there that we are working towards that our predecessors were also working towards when we see it as oppositional we only get half the story so when we're talking about hobbes we're talking about someone who is very much an atomist when we're talking about John Stuart Mill, um, Socrates a little bit less, it's, it's complicated, right? Because we also get Socrates right. via Plato. Plato's not an atomist. There's a like platonic, I don't want to get into platonic ontology. It's just, trust me, it's Nobody different. does. It's not what we're <laughs> talking about here. And <laughs> no. so well, when we're talking about like Epicurus and Lucretius, when we're talking even to a degree about Giordano Bruno, when we're talking about the French materialists, we're talking about people who have a sense-based epistemology. So the ground for them is what they know through the senses. And they're generally exclusive empiricists. So they don't think revelation or scripture or mysticism or mystical experiences are valid forms of knowledge. So it starts with this kind of epistemological foundation. And that's what they share. That's what Charvaka shares in India as well. It's an empiricist mm -hmm. philosophy. And then a lot right. of times what you find with hard empiricism is that it, it leads to very materialist conclusions about the world. Right. Which I don't love all of, let me be clear, <laughs> right? As a moral realist, I'm, I don't love all of those conclusions, let me be clear, but like, totally. yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so that's, for me, the red thread of that tradition is that epistemological foundation, and it's a sense-based ethics as well. So it's an ethics based very much in pleasure and pain, which for Epicurus is like, get off the roller coaster, man. Stop going so high in pleasure because mm -hmm. you're going to feel the low. And that's a different mm -hmm. idea than I think we get with like John Stuart Mill and utilitarianism, which is a much more collective understanding of like hedons and dolers and that kind of thing. But it's a sense-based empiricism that leads to certain ontological speculation about what's real, and it leads to a sense-based ethic. And that's the thing that I think you can trace. And that's the positive content. So if we frame it as like that, which has always been rejecting the religious idiots or something like that, we lose the positive content. Like if, if mm -hmm. I have a faith, I have a faith in an epistemology. And, and frankly, you know, after all the stuff I've read, it's a little bit unshakable. I'm kind of an empiricist. And yeah, I have some critical realist tendencies because what do I do with abstract categories and all that stuff, right? right? Totally, I'm down. But when it comes like to my everyday, like if I hear a weird noise in the other room, you know what I'm not thinking? It's a ghost. I have an empiricist sensorium. It's like how my body's been built. It's how I've built myself. But is that a faith or is that like a justified worldview? You brought up ethics, and this is where I want to care most about, obviously. And, like, I would love to hear your thoughts on the history of this specifically with regard to ethics. There's lots of areas you talk about in the book that I think are very useful around ritual and stuff. But what matters to me is the parts where it's like, why are atheists freaking out about atheism plus or something? And my sense of it roughly is... You know, in the 1900s, in the divorce between science and religion, like, we got facts and they got values and ethics. And, like, 
atheist got convinced that like their world their materialist worldview can't include any kind of robust ethics is that right is that your impression having talked to these folks there's i mean there's there's different traditions of it so like if you're an aristotelian materialist there's an ethics built into matter and that's why you'll have like Henri Bergson and that kind of vitalist tradition. The there's a there's two ways of reading Marx. You can read a kind of Aristotelian Marx, where there's like a, a direction of history and a morality built into it, or you can read a more sort of atomist Marx. If you have that sense-based way of understanding the world, it's very difficult to draw a, a sure conclusion that there's any kind of morality or purpose that inheres in the world. And usually what I find when people have that, whether they're philosophers 100 years ago or people I survey and talk to today, they say, well, my meaning and purpose comes from, comes from the activity of my life and that is, in fact, where all meaning and purpose comes from. So it's very much this sort of like person-centered understanding. And so I think, it's, I think it comes from that epistemology and in the extension of its ontology that whether meaning inheres in the world or meaning is something that humans create and then impose upon it. Just the same with language. Like, are we are words these kind of tools that circumscribe things imperfectly, or is there a kind of ideal of religion, which would be a very Platonist language ideology that there is something real? That's what nominalism and that whole tradition that draws on atomism and continues today and actually undergirds contemporary science. That's that empiricist nominal. That's words are are almost yep. fitting. It's like calculus. It's like the asymptotic curve. Right? It's getting close, but there's not. These are fundamental disagreements. And so I think when you're an empiricist... Yeah, you've exposed me as a covert Platonist, which is fine. I, hey, man, I... Right? No, but you see, you see, right? Like, it's... These oh, are, yeah. These distinctions get really tough with... But I think that that's the persistence of that that anxiety about whether morality inheres in the world. I try to deal with that a lot in the chapter on, on conversion, because when I was writing that chapter, I was like... And I still haven't figured out quite why this is, but something about discussing conversion, it just made it about ethics. And there was a point where I was like, gonna maybe call the chapter ethics. And then I realized like, no, this is a chapter about conversion that just keeps needing to think about ethics. And so there's various reasons for that. But like, yeah, I can think of a couple of reasons because like, we don't consider conversion necessarily ethical the way it's done a lot of the time. And conversion arguments are often ethically based, like the problem of evil. So there's a lot of ethics lingering in the background there. But let me ask you from your own sort of positionality as a secular individual, do you feel like you implicitly associate like an ethical worldview or values with religion? Or are you steeped enough in like academic world where you like recognize that there is secular ethics and it just had nothing to do with religion and that's totally fine? This is what it means to be the atheism guy in religious studies. It means to <laughs> give us a tradition and give us. A variety too, right? There's a variety of ways of being secular. You're telling me basically you have Platonist tendencies. That's a whole tradition, right? There's, a, there's many different ways to be secular, but but there's many ways to be Christian. And so if somebody's telling, you know, if I have a if I have a colleague who's like a, but there's better and worse ways too, right? Well, we can make those judgments, but we always make them from our position. And I'm not a relativist. I'll argue my position. Sure, but you're not a relativist. I want to make really clear about this. But if we want to say better and worse, like I think we should understand what we're doing there. Well, this is really important, though. Like, it's one thing to be willing to argue your position and still be a relativist. It's another thing to be like, I'm going to argue my position because certain forms of Christianity are worse than others. The Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, worse than 
you know, anything the evangelicals have thrown, or not the evangelicals, the um, Episcopalians are going to ever, ever throw out. On what criteria? On, on the like, basic ethical criteria, let's say. What, what are the basic ethical criteria? Well, the ethical criteria of like, again, this, is, so this goes back to the problem of like, what is religion? I think religion often centers around supernatural beliefs that cause harm because you think you have to hurt people for their benefit. So like, if your criteria for goodness is how many convert, converts you have, then maybe the Spanish Inquisition wins. But if you're, you know, your utilitarian calculus is like, how much harm did you cause to real persons? It's not a competition. And this is where I think I, I want to push on your relativism if there is any there and be like, we need to be really careful and not say that this is all up for debate because of your positionality. I think our positionality should make us more skeptical of our positions, but we should still be willing to hold strongly to the truth that like the Nazis were just wrong, for example. I think, let's well, set the Nazis aside for a second. You want to talk about the Crusades, right? So we're talking about a Mediterranean region that's like, there's different empires competing. And those empires have different sort of ideologies that undergird them. But we're often talking about like a handful of very powerful families, like using their vast resources to administer like armies and to go against each other for territory and other resources to be won and lost. To me, that's what's going on with the Crusades. And that's what's going on with the sort of history of Christian empire. And that's bad, right? Well, drone strikes are bad. I think uh, right. dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki are bad. I think that that's something that can only Agreed. arise from an incredible amount of scientific knowledge and a lot of people deeply committed to a secular way of understanding the world. That doesn't mean to me that secularism is like a, a sort of you know, failed path of humanity or something like that. I just think that's where you end up if you make that argument. If, if you want to start saying like, well, the Crusades, I think they can say Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So I don't really want to have that argument oh. as a secular Oh, person. so I don't think the argument is like, which one causes more harm, secularism or religion? This is more like, I'm, I'm like trying, you know, one secularist to another to be like, let's just sit here and say for a second, these things were objectively immoral in a way that God it doesn't depend on the existence of a God or otherwise. And that there's no... I want to argue there's nothing religious about saying it is objectively immoral what the Nazis did. But I think a lot of people want to say that has to come from a fundamentally religious place. And that is why a lot of secular individuals are deeply afraid of anything that looks like objective morality, anything that goes beyond like a very, very bland relativism. I think, I think we can be critical of the part of the secular tradition that's afraid of making moral judgments and is kind of resorting to a relativism. And I think we can diagnose what it is about certain secular beliefs that leads to that anxiety. Um, I, there's all these major figures we could consider, but like someone like Max Weber in Science as a Vocation, he really lays out the argument that we're kind of having in just a few pages. And he's like, science can help you do something more effectively. It can't set the goal of what you're going to do. That's a value judgment. And then he talks about how like that's sort of what uh, ministers and teachers and political leaders do is they sort of set those things and he sees them all kind of working together as a system and he sees the, the sort of bifurcation of these roles or the diversification of these roles as a system of rationalization. And so I think mm -hmm. we can be critical of certain things in our shared tradition, certain movements and certain developments that have made us not want to make ethical or moral claims. And I'm down for that. That's kind of a conversation among us at that point as a tradition.
and that's the conversation I want to be having, right? Yeah, like, I'm, yeah. I'm not, I'm not here to argue with the religious right now. I'm here to like have a like intervention with our own community, essentially, because like I think this matters on a variety of fronts. So, for example, one of my favorite quotes comes at the end of your book when you quote someone, I think, from the American Humanists, who's like, "Well, we don't have our morally intensive communities," and I love that concept. I'm, I've been pushing sort of value-centered community organizing and secularism, and I think that is the right thing that we need to be building is this idea of a morally intensive community, which is a community I think I interpret it as like, you have moral expectations. You have to like, this thing is not just a belief-based community. What what Vogel would say, it's not just a club. You're not just here because you all like sports, right? You're not just here because you just believe in God. You're here because you have an agenda that goes beyond that. Um, and as you also point out in, I think, maybe the conversion section or wherever you talk about atheism plus in the book, that like when people have tried to do this, it has gone deeply poorly for a variety of reasons, I also would argue, I'm curious your thoughts, the anti-woke movement, I don't know how much you caught this as you were doing your research, there was very much a schism, I would say, within movement secularism between the woke and the anti-woke, you you quote a lot of both sides of the thing to varying degrees, and I'm guessing it influenced to some extent who you were able to interview, um, but I think what was going on there was a, was an atheism purity reaction to a religious view of religion in, in, coming in in the form of wokeness. And a lot of those like early articles by McWhorter and James Lindsay basically are like wokeness is a religion that's infecting secularism. And what they really mean is wokeness is an ethics and ethics is religion. Um, so I see those things as all kind of coming together there. I I'm curious, was that your sense of things? How do you sort of interpret all that? Yeah, a couple of different threads. I mean, one of them is like this earlier question of what are we doing when we call something religious? Often we're saying it's um, guilty of groupthink, it's guilty of authoritarianism, or it's right. irrational. And so we use this word game strategy where we kind of like to bucket things. So it's like, um, you know, the people who, I mean, Hitchens did this too. It's like you put communism in the religion category because you don't like it and you want to take everything that you don't like and put it in that bucket. And then you have reasons you put it in that bucket. So that's, I just want to bracket that as like a word game that we do like to play. And it's not just secular mm -hmm. people that play it. That's like how we like to use language. And then this question of morally intense communities is, it's awesome. So that, that person, you know, Greg Epstein um, at Harvard has really been thinking about these questions for a long time. And so there have been various mm -hmm. people who've come through his organization and helped him raise funds and gone off and done this work in other places. And so that's, that's the set of people that I was talking to when we were talking about morally intense communities. And the individual mm -hmm. I was talking to was drawing on a particular book by David Campbell and Robert Putnam called American Grace. And in that mm -hmm. book, they make a, an argument that I think sometimes gets misread, but basically that argument's like, hey, religious people are uh, more likely to like volunteer and donate and stuff like that. But they say, it's not, we, we, we went and looked and it's not about whether they believe stuff. Cause we found some people who are like Catholic and atheist and they're going to Catholic mm -hmm. church and they're atheists, but they're more likely to just cause they're part of these morally intense communities. So that's their term for identifying the variable in their vast amount of research. And they think that's really the difference. And they say, well, you know, we would have studied secular morally intense communities, but we couldn't find any, which is kind of a load of BS. But that's what they say in the book. And so the mm -hmm. individual I was talking to at Harvard really picked up on that and was like, hey, there is a gap here and there's a way we can understand this. And I thought all oh, that was super smart. I really wanted to put it in the book. I thought it was very perceptive. I think it relates to what you're saying. So then for me, what I've realized is, okay, if we're going to have morally intense communities, are they going to be communities based on ontological agreement or communities based on epistemological agreement, or are they going to be communities based on shared moral purpose? And, and just to sort of put that in different language so it's clear, are we going to get together with other non-believers 
who have the same way of getting knowledge as us and same beliefs about what's real and not real as us, and then do good stuff from that community? Or are we going to form communities with people regardless of what they think is real or how they think the world should be known because we share that purpose with them? And I think that's really the core crisis is what's the basis of the community that then is morally intense and what's an effective way to create community and do things in the world. And America in general is struggling with this question right now because as religion declines, our modes of sort of organizing social capital are also eroding. Now, chicken or the egg there, what's the cause? Is it neoliberalism as part of the, right? And and I actually don't think the world's going to hell in a hand, but I think we just need to bring housing costs down, right? If you want to get, so it's like, I don't think, I think the kids are all right. But I think you're asking a really good question. And then the basis of that community becomes, for me, the important question. Yeah. And I think this is where I love Vogel's book on the art of community, where he makes this really good distinction between community and club, where it's like belief is for clubs, values are for communities. And I think like what atheism has gotten wrong as a movement when it tried to do the like belief only thing was the idea that you could be a community while only being doxastic. And that's, you know, a good criticism of like the thin definition of religion too, that most religions are not just the beliefs. It's belief plus. It is atheism plus, right? Where it's like, yes, we all agree that there's no God, there's no astrology, there's no any of these things that aren't in the empirical materialist worldview, but we're also going to make, you know, we're also, for example, I think one way to make the argument would be atheists are a marginalized community. This is a case I make. There's plenty of evidence they're marginalized, closeted, a variety of things. They, by extension, are in communicate you know in connection with other marginalized communities and and like if you're an atheist you have an obligation to improve the quality of life for not only other atheists but other marginalized individuals like we have this shared opposition specifically i would say to white christian nationalism which is often the thing that is behind the marginalization of a vast majority of people going back to our colonialist discussion so like you can make a bunch of cases for why there can't just be just atheism Right. If you're an atheist, you are already part of a community that has moral obligations like it has epistemic obligations, essentially. So I think we're now circling around the question of whether atheism entails ethics or atheism entails morals, and then it's going to hinge so much on what we mean by atheism. And that's why Mm -hmm. I'm glad I gave that sort of history of atheism and what it is. It's kind of an unholy alliance between this really Christian now term for heretic and this very particular tradition. So then I'd like to kind of simplify that question by saying, does this tradition have an ethic that is consistent? It's tricky, right? This is, and I think this is, I'm down to tell some stories from my chapter on conversion, because this is one where I do with ethics and really specific anecdotes and stuff where you can get at it. But before I do it real quick, like Ayn Rand, objectivist, that's what she called herself, atheist, right? Like, okay, it ha- we don't have a perfect score. Nobody's got a perfect score. <laughs> no, no, I'm, but I, I think like her, no, no, I yeah, think her yeah. view is pretty coherent for what it is. I just, I'm just to be clear, I disagree with her very strongly. But I just think like there's a variety in this tradition that you can get sure. two pretty coherent positions, and that it's not like there's one true philosophy here. It's like that's the tricky part. Well, so I guess I would say there are two groups and one group is right. So Ayn Rand is objectively wrong in her views about ethics, but she does represent a longstanding tradition within atheism. I will not deny that, just that they're a longstanding, objectively, ethically incorrect position. 
We could, I mean, do you know, like Leo Strauss, we could argue that there's a whole, like, I'd argue that that's an atheist tradition as well. And it's very much an elitist one that doesn't trust the mass. And I'm like, sure. And there's a lot of like anti-realist, there's like a, like a lot of very good anti-realist atheists out there. You know, like Shelley Kagan, for example, moral anti-realist, great human being, has done way more for ethics than I ever will, even though I think they're very wrong about like, or they're like, they should actually be classified as a moral realist. Anyway. Um, so there are different traditions. I should be clear about what I'm saying then. So I wasn't mm. meaning to sort of smear atheists by including Ayn Rand in our ranks. I think that oh, no, that's of course a not. fool already never. And if you want to just like look at the surveys, you know, there's a great book, Secular Surge. Mm -hmm. David Campbell is one of the authors. I don't know the religiosity of others. David Campbell is a member of the LDS church, writes this book, Secular Surge. It's a pretty even-handed shake. It shows secular people are the le most leftist. They're the most consistent. It's like, right. if you look in terms of like a block of people who are voting, and it's like Ayn Rand is not representative of this group of people. So I, just to be clear what I mean by that. Sure. But what I meant to say is sort of like, if you really take, if you distill down those premises of like a, a sense-based epistemology mm -hmm. and like a sense-based ethics, and you try to extend them a little bit into like, claims about reality, it's a lot more work to go from there into sort of moral claims or ethical claims. You got to fill in a sure. lot of gaps. So if yep. that little area that I just articulated is all you share, that's going to go a lot of different directions pretty legitimately. Mm -hmm. You need to share a lot more than that. So if you're starting to organize people based on, well, kind of these minimal shared understandings of like, no God, scientific empiricists, into science, things like that, the variety of people that are rallying around that, it's just not specific enough to then share those different values. So I think that from, from like a community or movement perspective, that's like, what is the basis of your community becomes the important thing again. And if, if it's atheism, it's non-belief, it's free thought, I mean, you can expand and contract some of these categories. If they get distilled down to just these like basic ontological and epistemological claims, which is as someone who studied this movement for a while, that's what happens. Sure. To their detriment. Th then it's difficult to unify everyone in terms of values. Yeah. I think the idea is you really have to push for something like Atheism Plus, where it's like there has to be a value at the core of it, and you're going to lose some of your like shared epistemologists because they aren't on board for those values, and your community is going to reorient some as a result, but it's going to be better, healthier, growing more afterwards. You mentioned the like specific examples of like anxiety around ethics. Do you want to give sort of one of the examples of someone like struggling in real time with this trying to value without valuing? Because I think it's a problem that like not just even overt atheists, but anyone in the broadly liberal secular world probably wrestles with. Yeah, I do. I should say, you know, I did field, field research for years and I met a lot of people and people were really nice and people were really welcoming and people were really smart and they taught me a lot of things and they recommended me a lot of great books. So one of the instances in which people were really welcoming was there was a man who invited me to watch the taping of an atheist cable television program in Fairfax, Virginia. And he happened to be the guest that day. And I had never met the hosts before. And so I met them and, and they were just really welcoming and they were sitting down and talking about what they wanted to have on that show. And this is the story I opened the fourth chapter of the book with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. pretty nice, smart people. And so they're then like, they're, what I didn't realize what they were doing at first is they were actually trying to identify things that divide atheists and kind of get them riled up. And they were, mm -hmm. they were trying to look, because the, the controversy, the disagreement around something, 
but later I realized that they're right. kind of feeling it out. And so then what the guest, the guy that I was there with told a story and he said, you know, recently an older white atheist guy offered to give my organization for Hispanic atheists a whole bunch of money if we would agree to register with the U.S. government and try to oppose proselytizing in Latin American countries. And however he pitched this, it was overtly racist. And he said, well, I don't like Christians and I don't like brown people. And so getting everyone to kind of watch them fight, that sounds fun to me. And so the guy was thinking, you know, should I take this money? He's like, for my organization, it's a ton of money. For this rich guy, it's not a lot of money. And they were talking through the ethics of whether or not he should accept this money. And I think people were taking sides that we can predict in some ways. Like if the money, if it's a consequentialist ethic and the money's going for an ultimately good cause, then it's a good thing, right? So like- Right, you take the drug cartel money. Exactly. But if it's a more like categorical imperative or we need to have an ethos and we need to really stick by that ethos and have principles, then this is obviously going to compromise it for most people. And so that was a really interesting conversation to me because it was a concrete ethical situation that had to do with race and two degree imperialism and, and atheism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sh what do you do and what does an atheist do? And then I was watching atheists debate it. And one guy was like, of course, you take the money. And I think what he said was something like, even Nazis do good things sometimes. And then... Big on anti-smoking. What's that? And Nazis were big on anti-smoking. They were the first major anti-smoking campaign. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah, hey, there you go. Broken clock, right? <laughs> but, yeah, so like, but you can hear in the argument, you can hear like all these other perspectives kind of playing out as well. So you can be like a kind of free speech, individual freedom radical and be an atheist. And that works. You can be a pretty like, you know, you could be like a hardcore socialist communist atheist and that works. There's a whole Marxist tradition. There's such a range. And in that room, people were, were really kind of working those things out. And for me, that's the start of a chapter where I then conclude that from those minimalist premises, you don't have an ethics entailed. And that's part of why there's so much debate about these ethical questions. So I, th I thought that was telling for me, at least instructive. I think that's good. And I think like Going back to an, an episode I did about solidarity and conflict in solidarity groups, I think it would be better for movement atheism to like redivide itself in terms of those lines. Like, so to go back to your question of like, do we care more about values or religion? There's a common refrain I hear nowadays where it's like, I would much rather engage in community work with a religious individual who shares my views about trans rights than an atheist Nazi. You know, like, it's just not a hard question for a lot of people these days, but it would mean a lot of, like, breaking up of lines, like, breaking up of communities that came together during what we think of as, I think, kind of like the new atheist phase of the 2000s, when a lot of it was just, like, coming together to bash on magical religious thinking during the war on terror. So there's this phrase, it's a, I don't know where it comes from, it's odd, it doesn't really work, but it describes when you have a survey question that's trying to do two things at once. And so when mm. you ask it, you're going to get sort of two different subsets of people who interpret the question question differently. It's called double-barreled. Okay. And so when I look at something like Atheism Plus, it seems double-barreled. Okay. And so if you want to have both that intense value direction and this sort of ontological and epistemological set of things, you're going to be excluding other people who don't share that, those philosophical views with you from your values group. And you're going to be excluding other people who share your ontology, epistemology 
from your thing because they don't share your values. So when you're double barreled, it's going to be really hard because you're basically looking for that intersection of community rather than a single thing that's unifying community. And just from a community organizing perspective, it's possible, but I think we've seen where those challenges go. Yeah. And I think it's harder. I think it's also the right move. Like I think you're better off doing that than committing yourself to one thing or the other. And also that like doing that doesn't necessarily have to be religious. You can say in your community. So like one, one, you know, to go back to like, what is religion? You often, you mentioned that like sometimes it's conflated with things like dogmatic views. And so like, if you say we're not going to have an argument, you know, we're not going to do the John Stuart Mill style endless debate around trans rights in our community anymore. Some people are like, oh, well that's religion. And I think that's just, that's not a good use of the concept. I think there are better and worse uses of the concept, essentially, and that's not a very good one. I agree. And that I think we would probably we would agree on, and that's where I think a lot of that, like, we needed to have those fights. We need to have out the conflict for people who are just, like, who wanted to just endlessly spar about other people's personhood or something like that in a way that just wasn't going to be conducive to, like, long-term community organizing. So I think, I mean, I, I like I like the idea that progress has been made, but I think one of the core arguments of the book is that when you're dealing with a essentially a conceptual trauma like the secular paradox, which is basically something that can't be resolved conceptually, it's the you need to not be religious, but you're going to look a lot like religion as long as you're under Christian conditions. And so that I don't see getting resolved. So I see a lot of these issues. These are sort of mini paradoxes extending out from the secular paradox. So I say it's so generative. So I like the idea that you and I could kind of talk about something and we could find a solution. But what I saw again and again, studying not just this movement, but 19th century free thought, there's an awesome debate between Charles Bradlaugh and George Jacob Holyoke that's, I think, in 1870. And if you read that, the parallels between that and contemporary fights are both beautiful and shocking and saddening, right? And so I think that I, I'm not as hopeful in that sense. I think what we're going to see is this kind of just this churn as some of these fundamental questions aren't getting resolved. And I think it is important to recognize, you know, Sunday Assembly created its own kind of movement, the Oasis Church Network uh, in Texas. Friend of the show. Ethical culture existing for a long time, right? There are people who've kind of built these ways. There's sort of spaces where people who share values and are non-theistic can get together. We have examples of that working. We have examples right. of it working. But then there's going to, if that's the only local game, if you, all you have in town is a Sunday assembly, and you're like, man, that's too religious for me, then you're going to found some other group that only meets once a month and meets in a bar, and there's no hierarchy to it. And that's the pendulum swinging of the secular paradox, <laughs> too. It's like, if it looks too religious, you got to get away from it. If it looks not religious enough, well, I got kids, and they got we need some kind of daycare thing. We need some, you know what I mean? You start building infrastructure, and then it looks too religious again. So I think that like that tension between not being religious but looking a lot like religion under Christian conditions, that's the hardcore underlying animating force of all of these challenges. I think that's a really good place to stop for the main show. And I want to like, I, I love it. And I want to argue it more a little in the like VIP stuff because it feels like it's a psychological problem that could be workable, but maybe you're right. And I also want to talk about why you got criticized for not being critical enough of secular people since we didn't get to that either. Um, but since we're a little short on time, I do think that's a really good summary of the problem that we are appearing to be struggling with to varying degrees. And now I unfortunately have to torture you a little bit, make you struggle to varying degrees before we can get back to that. So this is the enlightening round. 
Enlightenment comes from within. Uh, so for people who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a series of things. You are shaking your head because you are not familiar, which is great. Uh, I'm going to give you a series of things and you're going to do something you're not going to like, which is you're going to have to tell me if it's real or not real. Those are your only options. You don't get to explain what you mean by real or not real. There's no hedging, no, you know, in these contexts, etc. Okay. Do you feel like you understand the situation? I do want to tell you a story that's the epilogue of my book about from the Don Quixote, but I'll play along with the game. Ah, we'll save Don Quixote for the after dark. You can explain why this is torturous for you. So, real or not real? First of all, I have to ask, because this is a philosophy show, is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. Let's find out what is real. I talked to Buddhists, it matters, okay? First of all, bodies, real or not real? Uh, real. Okay. Minds, real or not real? Real. Souls? Real. Free will. Real. Luck. Real. Ghosts. Real. Aliens. Real. Truth. Real. Beauty. Real. And finally, justice. Real. All right. You survived. How do you feel? Good. It was a good exercise. I'm happy to talk about why. Have you learned things about yourself? No, I have not. <laughs> okay, I have learned nothing about myself, and this was not suffering at all. Very impressive. I like when people go full realist all the way. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll talk about that. But, um, Joseph, do you want to let folks know where they can find your stuff? online anywhere before we hop over to that? Yeah, I think, you know, like most academics, what I'm working on, I try to post to my faculty profile page at UCSB. Um, I've never been super good at social media and don't invest a lot of time there. I'm working on a new project that's a study that began in 1970, identifying 370 families that have been tracked since then. We reached the fifth generation for the first time. So I've completed surveys and interviews and we have three generations of people talking about each other and thinking about a lot of these questions, secular, spiritual, religious. And that's kind mm. of the, the new work that I'm doing is, is based out of that. Very cool. And the book, again, is The Secular Paradox on the religion of the not religious. I strongly recommend reading it, even if, like I said at the beginning, you initially might be worried that it's making certain claims about what is religion or not. I think it is still a very, very good diagnosis of our community challenges. And we've only like talked about like one quarter of the various things that you got into a lot of good quotes so really appreciate the work and thank you again for coming on um and if folks want to hear a little bit more of back and forth come join us over in the vip segment as a human i was ill-equipped to thank you but as myself you have my everlasting gratitude thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible thanks to our newest monthly voidling chris Esty, and our newest yearly voidling, Hirsinian, and thanks to our newest monthly avout, Miraki. I'd also like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Void-Pilled, Eldrick Farmer, Alex Beneshek, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Fix the Vote, and Grumble Grumble, and all the thanks to our Archduke-level patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. I'd also like to give a huge shout out to our new editor, Adam Wick. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, with my co-host Callie Wright of the Queer Splaining Podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. 
You can also come join the Philosophers in Space Embrace the Void Facebook group or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early accessed episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, whatever your level of secular purity, you are the void and the void is you.